Father, we do come and we pray. And we praise you that your mercy is more. It is enough and it is sufficient. For it gives us Christ. And in him we have all that we need. So attend to the preaching of your word. That we might see and savor Jesus. Knowing that he is better than anything sin promises. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Children, let me invite you to meet your teachers in the back. So the closer I have gotten to preaching this morning, um, the more the the Lord has laid a a burden on my heart. I know there are people here this morning that are afflicted. And they need to be comforted. And at the same time, I know there are people here this morning that are too comfortable and they need the Lord's kindness to afflict them. And I feel a way, how do I, how do I do that? I can't. And this morning's sermon text is, it's hard. It's heavy. And so I'm going to trust the Lord to apply the word where it needs to be applied. So I hope this morning that if you are afflicted, the tenderness of God in this passage would comfort you. And my prayer is that if you're comfortable this morning, that the severity of God through this passage would afflict you. And so we start and we ask that question, what happens when people reject God and do what is right in their own eyes? Or if we were to put it more personally, what happens when I am the greatest authority in my life? That's the question the book of Judges answers. And so we've been going through this book and we've seen that there are seven cycles throughout this book of God's wayward people. Disobedience leads to destruction, which then leads God's people to cry out in distress. And then God delivers his people. But Israel forgets. And so these cycles are not just round and round, but they are down and down. Like a plunge into a dark hole, it is getting messier and darker with each chapter. But God will not forget His people. So time and time again, God raises up judges. We find 12 of them throughout the book. And let's be clear, these judges are not perfect people. God is not using them because they're awesome and just really moral. No, they are imperfect people used by God for His perfect purposes. We'll see that clear this morning in a guy named Jephthah. And so this morning, we're met with troubling, disturbing issues. And perhaps this is what we need. As I said, perhaps this is what we need. So like a good doctor, perhaps this is the medicine the Lord is dispensing to keep us from a complacent, comfortable Christianity that takes sin lightly, self-supremely, and relegates God to the margins of our lives. Maybe God has brought us to this book at this time so we would understand God and the gospel is not a neat package that fits into our life just as it is. But it comes into our life to offer hope, conviction, mercy that we would see and savor Christ. Judges is a dark cautionary tale. But against that dark backdrop, the hope And the beauty of the gospel shines all the more brightly, doesn't it? And so this morning we're going to look at Judges chapters 10 through 12. 
And we find six judges mentioned in these chapters. But really the focus is on Israel's idolatry and one judge named Jephthah. And so that's where we're going to spend most of our time. And all of you know that I love to give nice, neat little outlines for you as I preach. I don't have that this morning. As hard as I tried, I just couldn't find one. But I do kind of have two guiding thoughts that I'll use to help us understand and apply the text as we go. And they are this. You've heard them before, probably. Sin is more serious than you think. That's one. The other is, God is more glorious and gracious than you imagine. We'll use those two phrases to help us understand and apply Judges 10 through 12. So let's jump in. Judges chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which is in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. So if you remember back to last week, we heard the wonderful uplifting story of Abimelech, who left Israel with death and destruction. He had this forceful, evil rule. And while we don't have much information on Tola and Jair, they remind us of God's faithfulness, don't they? That evil will not have the last word. God's mercy will have the last word. Evil never wins. Even when it appears like it's winning. Abimelech looked like he was winning. But evil never wins. The Lord will deliver his people. We see that here. And as Nathan showed us last week, this is exactly what we see in the cross of Christ. It appeared as though evil was winning on that day. But evil never wins. As Jesus, the sinless Son of God, hung in agony... He was ultimately triumphing over evil in the cross. God always delivers His people. In our text, He raised up Tola and Jair to do that. Now how will Israel respond to God's kindness? Chapter 10, verse 6-9. through The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So the house of Israel was severely distressed. So we see that refrain that we've seen so many times before. The people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Cue the broken record. Deliverance followed by Forgetful disobedience. And did you notice in verse 6? The people now are not just serving the Baals and the Asheroth. That's what we've seen before. 
But now there's something different. They're also serving the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, Ammonites, and the Philistines. In other words, any and every god around and in their land, they are now worshiping. How did we get here? Remember back to the beginning, it started so unintentionally. The Lord said what? Go into the land and do what to the people? Remove them. But what did they do? Ah, we don't have to remove them. We can actually put them to work for us. The Lord, the land promise, we can use, use them to help cultivate it. That, that, that's technically obeying God. And then there's a the next little step. Well, since they're already here in our land, I mean, I know technically we're not supposed to marry people of a different faith, but I mean, wouldn't it be great if all these people started actually worshiping the Lord? So why don't we flirt to convert, and then they'll worship the Lord with us? That'd be good. A few small decisions. Fast forward to Judges 11. What once seemed trivial has driven the Israelites completely away. Their sin has taken them to places they didn't want to go. So instead of trusting God and the goodness of His Word, the Israelites reject God's instruction and do what is right in their own eyes. And their rebellion leads to ruin. Sin is more serious than you think. It takes you to places you don't want to go. A man by the name of J.C. Ryle said it this way. Nothing darkens the eyes of the mind so much and deadens the conscience so surely as an allowed sin. It may be a little one, but it's not the less dangerous for all that. A small leak will sink a great ship. A small spark will kindle a great fire, and a little sin allowed in like manner will ruin an immortal soul. There is nothing smaller than the point of a needle, but when it has made a hole, it draws in all the thread after it. Remember the apostles' words, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, end quote. Giving in to a little bit of temptation is harmless, we think. That lustful second and third look, rationalizing those resentful and bitter feelings, dismissing and minimizing that racist and prejudiced thought, discussing just a little bit of gossip, telling just a white lie, refusing to give generously just one more month, dwelling on that illicit fantasy ever so briefly, skipping church just one more time. They don't lead to anything we tell ourselves. It's not as bad as what they're doing. It's not the case. Each little act of disobedience, each defiant questioning, did God really say? It's like a small point of that needle. Once it pierces the soul, it draws in a whole thread of other sins. Why? Because sin is not just something we do. Sin shapes our loves and our affections. So with each sin, it's not just you're doing a bad thing, it's that your love is being bent away from delighting in Christ. 
Love, I mean, sin is not just something we do. It shapes our love. And so if Satan can't damn you with a big sin, here's what he'll do. He'll bend your love one degree at a time with a bunch of small ones. So that then your love for God becomes dull. Don't believe the lie you can manage your sin. Sin is more serious than you think. It'll take you to places you don't want to go. As we say often, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. And Israel's choose their sin. They forsake God. They serve other gods, every other god around them. And notice what the text says. They're crushed, oppressed, severely distressed, the text says. It's using language that we've not seen before in Judges. So what are they going to do? Verses 10 through 16 of chapter 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you? And you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen and let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So the Israelites do what we've seen them do time and time again, don't they? They get into trouble and they dial up God. How is God going to respond? Well, first, he reminds them of his past grace. Did I not save you? And almost in in comical irony... They, they, if you go back to verse 6, it lists seven gods they're serving. And now in these, this deliverance, he lists seven times that he's delivered them. God's patient and gracious, delivering his people. But each time they forsake him. And so, he says now, I will save you no more. That's shocking. Has the Lord's patience run out? Did they exhaust the kindness of God? Why is the Lord responding this way? Because He knows His people aren't sorry for their rebellion and disobedience. They're merely confessing their sin. But there's a large gap between merely confessing and truly repenting. So confession alone has very little to do with the Lord and very much to do with myself. Confession alone focuses on being sorry for the consequences of sin, like the Israelites, but not truly broken over the sin. So here's what this passage is telling us. God is not satisfied with mere confession. God is not satisfied with mere confession. Sin is more serious than you think. It requires not just confession, but repentance. What's the difference, you ask? Well, confession can be relegated to an observation about your life. Repentance is a reorientation of your life. 
Confession can be reduced to words you say to God. Repentance is about renewed worship of God. Confession admits you broke God's rules. Repentance recognizes you broke God's heart. Confession is about feeling sorry for yourself. Repentance is about looking to Christ and being satisfied in Him. Are there places where you are merely confessing your sin and not truly repenting? To be clear, we need to confess our sin. We need to confess it to God and to each other. But confession alone, with empty words and shallow actions, is not enough. So in your community groups this week, and throughout our life together as a church, let's make sure that we're not cultivating mere confession. But we're helping each other truly repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So in your community groups, brothers and sisters, ask each other as you confess your struggles, as you confess sin, as you work through the messiness of life, ask each other, what does repentance look like here? What does it look like for us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Because true repentance leads us to Jesus, and Jesus is the one who satisfies our hearts. Confession only makes you feel okay. Repentance that brings you the one that really satisfies you to Jesus. And so what about Israel here? Are they truly repenting? Well, some people look at verses 15 and 16 and, and say, well, Israel really becomes repentant because it says they put away false God and serve the Lord. Now, I'm not convinced. I don't know that they move beyond confession and empty actions. I say that because, one, just the trajectory of judges. Just go read chapter 13 and you'll see they do again. But also, did you notice what they say in this verse? Verse 15, the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned against you, confession. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us. In other words, God, do whatever seems good to you, and we're going to tell you what's good. Because we don't trust you. And so they're treating God as if he's another one of their idols. Say the right things, push the right buttons, make the right sacrifices, and manipulate God into delivering us. So growing up, each Sunday, we would go to my grandmother's for lunch. And my grandmother collected magnets, and so her refrigerator was just covered with magnets. And one of the magnets I'll never forget is this little clear case, and it had just a few pieces of little snack mix in it, like a pretzel and a Chex Mix, and it was sitting on the refrigerator. And on the outside, it was, you know, in red letters, break only in case of severe hunger. And I couldn't help but think as I was studying this passage, this is exactly the way the Israelites are treating God. As a heavenly vending machine that they only go to in times of emergency. So the Lord tells his people, listen, I know what you're up to. You're seeking me to use me for your good, not worship me for my glory. You want to run to idols? Run to idols. Let them deliver you. Let's see if those idols love you and and satisfy you and free you as I have done. You want idols? Go serve your idols. This is the divine version of, you made your bed? Go sleep in it. Shocking. We, we can sense a bit of the Lord's frustration here, can't we? 
So what is he trying to get his people to realize? Idols never save. Sin never delivers what it promises. So God gives them what they want so they'll realize what they truly need. You want idols? Go get idols. But you're going to see they don't, they don't deliver you. Sin is more serious than you think. It never delivers what it promises. It promises liberty and freedom, but it brings oppression. All of us are on a quest for joy, motivated by what we think will make us happy. And so we pursue those things, don't we? And sometimes those are good things that end up becoming ultimate things. So we put our hope in a promising new job, but we're quickly let down and it just doesn't deliver. The grass was not greener. Turn in one long day after another. The ultimate gladness that we thought that that, that accomplishment was going to bring us, put all of our hope in it, this is going to be the thing that, that gets me to the next level. Not even really referenced anymore. Security promised by, by saving just a little bit more money, that bank account just a little bit bigger, never actually buys the peace that it promises. So sometimes our idols are good things that become ultimate things, but sometimes our idols are just outright sinful things. The promise of that indulgent lust only leaves you feeling guilty and trapped. Treating that person harshly or with prejudice only makes you feel better for a little bit, leaves you empty on the inside. And that's the trap of sin. It gives you just enough to make you momentarily happy. But it never really delivers. I recently read that sin is like those trick birthday candles. You blow them out, and for a moment you smile thinking you got what you wish for. But soon it just bursts back into flames. That's sin. It's more serious then you think it never delivers what it promises. What hope do we have? Well, the hope we have is found in verse 16. The Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. Or as another translation puts it, His soul could no longer endure or bear the suffering of Israel. Here we see into the depths of God's heart for His people. Like a compassionate father, He cannot stand to see His children. Yes, even His rebellious children crushed and oppressed. They might be okay with forsaking Him, but He is not okay with forgetting them. Is this your picture of the Lord? God is not an unruly boss. Eagerly looking from the balcony of heaven for you to mess up so he can whack you with his stick. That's not the picture of God. In Israel's affliction, he is afflicted. You see that? Israel's affliction, he is afflicted. Most of you know that I am no musician. But I'm told there is this thing called sympathetic resonance. So that if you have two stringed instruments and you pluck the strings on one, the strings on the other begin to vibrate. 
matching this one. Here we have a picture of God who has sympathetic resonance for his people. God is more glorious and gracious than you imagine. You see, he is more glorious because his holiness demands payment for rebellion. I will save you no more. But he's more gracious. More gracious than we can imagine. His compassion moves him to say, I can no longer bear with your misery. And here we have a tension that's only finally and fully resolved in the cross of Jesus Christ. The God of glory and the God of grace resolved as Jesus Christ hanging on a rugged cross, taking the payment for sin. See, at the cross, God gets the justice He deserves. And at the cross, we get the grace we so desperately need. At the cross, God's wrath is satisfied. At the cross, God's love is magnified. And at the cross, the glorious grace of the gospel is maximized. God is more glorious and gracious than you imagine. Brothers and sisters, never let this get old on you. Christianity is a horrible hobby. Don't let this gospel become dull and bland to you. As you read Scripture, savor Christ. The only thing that's going to help you fight sin is seeing Jesus. Starve sin by savoring Christ. Remind each other as you do so well of the gospel of glory and grace. Speak gospel words to one another of this God who doesn't tolerate sin. I will save you no more. Yet is so gracious, I can bear your suffering no longer. As we sing, marinate in the wonders of the gospel, every week, every week, rehearse it. In just a minute, we're going to sing this. As I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Rejoice as you sing that. My friends here are not trusting in Christ this morning. I hope you see that your sin and your rebellion may be more, more serious than you thought. Left to yourself, God looks at you and says, I will save you no more. Go to the idols. But there's good news. God is more glorious and gracious than you imagine. And in Christ, He comes and He says, I'll forsake my son so I don't have to forsake you. Your idols won't deliver you, but I will. Will you come to me? Will you turn and trust in me alone and find freedom and forgiveness? If you're not trusting Christ this morning, that's the, the offering of this passage to you. Our only hope is for God not to look at us and find a reason in us to save us. It's for God to look into Himself 
and save us because of who he is. And that's what he does here in this passage. He knows, verse 17 and 18, the Ammonites are going to prepare for battle against Israel. And that's what happens. They, they start coming against Israel. And so Israel looks around and like, we need a leader. We need somebody to save us. That brings us to chapter 11 and a man named Jephthah. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now Jephthah Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, a worthless and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Verse 9. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your head. And the elders of the Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be our witness between us. If we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So Ammonites come against Israel. They, they need a leader. We get this short introduction in verses 1 through 3 of Jephthah. Son of a prostitute. Hated by his family. Surrounded by outcasts. But he's a great warrior. And evidently he made his name known as a warrior. And so when Israel's attacked, the one they reject is the one they go back to. Hey, Jephthah, we know like we kicked you out, but would you come lead us? Would you come deliver us? And after a bit of bargaining, Jephthah agrees. And the people, all right, before the Lord, we're going to do this. And, and Jephthah acknowledges the Lord's place. And so here we have yet another episode of God delivering his people from hopeless situation in surprising ways. God is more gracious and glorious than we imagine. He's going to use Jephthah to deliver his people. Jephthah, as we're going to see, is far from imperfect. Or is, is, is far from perfect. He is very imperfect. God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. So no matter where you are this morning, no matter what you've done, you're not beyond the reach of God's grace. I think it's a side application of this passage that God uses imperfect people to accomplish His perfect purposes. And so no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, think about Jephthah's background. A lot of this he had nothing to do with. Yet God in His kindness is going to use him. Friend, you're not beyond God's grace. Don't believe the lie that what's happened to you defines you. He uses imperfect people, and Jephthah is an imperfect man. I'm not going to read it, but verses 
15 or 12 down through 26, Jephthah, his first order of business is he, he goes to the Ammonite king and he tries to negotiate a peace treaty. They basically have this email chain back and forth about what's going to happen. And so in the first couple of verses, verses 15 through 22, Jephthah gives him his historical reasoning. And then in verses 23 and 24, Jephthah lays out a theological reasoning. And then finally, in verses 25 and 26, he lays out his logical case. And here's essentially what Jephthah says. He says, listen, O king of the Ammonites, point one, this land was never yours. Point two, if your God is really God, then he'll give it to you. And he didn't. Point three, it's been 300 years since your ancestors were worried about it, so why are you bringing it up now? Leave me alone. That's his case. But, Jephthah concludes, I have therefore not sinned, this is verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammonon. But verse 28, the king of Ammon refuses the peace treaty, instead wants to go to war. Not a smart decision on his half, as we'll see, but that's what he chooses to do. So verse 29, the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on Mizpah to Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So in verse 29, as we've seen before, with Othniel and Gideon, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah in preparation for what? For battle, to deliver up his people. So Jephthah, he, he travels around to all these places, Mizpah and Ammonite, he, he gathers the troops. And he's getting ready for battle. And as we get ready to read what's next, it's important that what we remember that the, the, the clothing of the Spirit in the Old Testament is different from being indwelled by the Spirit of the New Testament after Christ comes. So typically in the Old Testament, the Spirit comes upon somebody for a specific time and a specific task. And just because the Lord uses someone for a task does not mean he endorses everything about that person. Make sense? That's going to be important here in a minute when we read what happens next. So, but the, 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 Jephthah has the Spirit of the Lord on him. Victory over the Ammonites is assured. And so Jephthah trusts the Lord completely and Israel lives happily ever after. Not exactly. Chapter 11, verses 30 through 40. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. 
So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountain and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So she said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Now there's a lot to unpack here, and we'll talk about the details of Jephthah's vow in just a minute. But whatever that vow is, I think it's important to realize something about Jephthah. You notice his language back in verses 30 and 31. If you do this, God, then I'll do this for you. He's seeking to secure the favor of God by bargaining with God. Sure, he may be sincere. He may be sacrificial. But whatever he's doing in this moment shows a lack of trust in God's goodness. Jephthah was trying to secure his future. Remember, he has no inheritance. He was was exiled from his family. So he's trying to secure his inheritance for his family. And he's trying to seek the future by bargaining with the Lord. And the Lord gives him a stunning victory. But did you notice? It's almost a side note. Two verses, 32 and 33. Oh yeah, they had victory. But it's overshadowed by the lament and the sorrow of Jephthah's sinful actions. Now his family line ends no matter what. Sin is more serious than you think. It never delivers what it promises. And here's the thing. Jephthah's vow is needless. God had already promised to give victory. He had already promised to give victory through Jephthah. God does not command the vow. God does not commend the vow. In fact, you'll notice that God is eerily silent. He doesn't even interact with it. Jephthah thought the Lord needed to be bought off or impressed. Jephthah knew something about God's character. But he underestimated the glory and the grace of God. What about you? Do you think God needs to be bought off? Christian brothers and sisters, I understand that our confessional theology might be, no, he doesn't need to be bought off. But what about your functional theology? Here's what I mean. You, like Jephthah, can recite God's past grace. You, like Jephthah, might even say, let the Lord, God, decide what is good. But you find yourself doing things or promising things that the Lord would just act in a certain way that you desire. So you might say things like, Lord, if you would just give me a spouse, then I'll... Lord, since I've read my Bible and went to church this month, would you just... Lord, because I've obeyed recently, I think you owe me... But God is more glorious and gracious than we imagine. You don't have to buy him off. But here's the problem. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we struggle to believe in a God of grace. 
we struggle to believe that God is actually after what is good for us and best for us in our lives. And so we feel like we have to manipulate things from God. We have His promises, and then we go and say, Lord, if you would just do this, then I would really worship you. Here's a question for you. In what ways would you live differently if you believe that God was really committed to you and loved you because of who He is, not because of what you've done or promised to do? How would your life look more radical if you believed that? Or better yet, how would your life look more restful if you believed that you did not have to make a vow to please God because God made a vow to purchase you in Christ. God's love is not a sentimental feeling that we have to sustain with our promises and our actions. God's love is a covenantal commitment sealed with a bloody cross and empty tomb. You can't manipulate Him. And if you try... It's sinful. For my friends here think somehow that you need to buy God off. I hope you see that's not the case. That's not the message of Christianity. You can't use your behavior to manipulate God. God's more glorious and gracious than that. If you want to talk more about that, ask the person that you came with, come find me. But understand, no matter what it is, you can't do enough good things to try to buy God off and earn His favor. But we still have to answer the question, what exactly is Jephthah's vow? Jephthah dedicates whatever comes out of his home to meet him when he gets home as a burnt offering to the Lord. And when he comes home, his daughter comes out dancing with a tambourine to meet him. Now, what happens next? You can ask Nathan, you can ask Catherine, those who have been around me this week. I have prayed and thought and a lot about what's happening here. And when you boil everything down, there's essentially two options that people take. First, some say that Jephthah kept his vow by dedicating his daughter to the service of the Lord. She was an offering to the Lord in that he dedicated her in the temple because of his vow. In other words, she became a nun for the rest of her life. And because of that, she would have no children, and Jephthah's lineage would end because she would remain unmarried and a virgin. And people who take that position, look at the text, they listen, the, the emphasis, it appears the emphasis is on her virginity, not on her death. That's what she's weeping for. And there are godly people who I respect who take the Bible seriously, who take this position. I don't think they're trying to get around hard text. I don't think they're trying to minimize what the Bible says, and this is the position they take. But after prayer and a lot of discussion and a lot of thinking, I I personally don't think that's what's happening here. And I think it for at least two reasons. One, to me, it's just not the most natural reading of the text. And two, it doesn't fit the storyline of Judges. Where the leaders are corrupt, God's law is ignored, And people are doing what is right in their own eyes. So as sobering as it is, what's the second option? That Jephthah actually put his daughter to death. 
that he offered her up as a burnt offering. It's what he promised to do. And while he didn't expect it was going to be his daughter who was going to come out, it was. And so tragic that they set up a time of lament every year for this occasion. This was a sacrifice. This sacrificial practice was like the surrounding nations. God tells His people in Deuteronomy 12, don't do that. Don't do that. So why would Jephthah do it? Well, like I said, I don't think he completely trusted God's goodness in this act. He was acquainted with God's law for sure. But he didn't understand God's law was for his good. He bought into the lie that he needed to manipulate God and then and only then would God bless him and be for him. But whatever, whatever position you take, you still have to ask the question, why did he keep the vow? Like, okay, sure, he made a dumb, foolish decision trying to buy off God, but why did he keep it? Why not just confess his sinful foolishness and break his vow to save his daughter? There's even provision in Leviticus for this. Well, I think Jephthah keeps the vow for the same reason he makes it. He's trapped by his mistrust of God. He's trapped by his mistrust of God. Jephthah doesn't realize how glorious and how gracious God is, so he does the irrational and the unthinkable. That's what sin is. Ours may not look like this, but every sin is irrational. Every sin minimizes the glory and the grace of God. So let's not read this and think holier than we are. No, we may not sin in the same way as Jephthah, but all of us are guilty of minimizing the glory and the grace of God. He's, he is trapped by his mistrust. As someone said in my community group this week, they said, this makes me feel uncomfortable. And I said, I think that's the point. The lament, the weeping, and the sorrow helps us feel the weight of the tragedy of what happens when we do what's right in our own eyes. And I wish I could tell you that it got better. But we move on to chapter 12. You know what happens in the first six six verses of chapter 12? Civil war breaks out. Now not only are they fighting the nations around them, they are fighting themselves. Jephthah and the Gilead and the Ephraimites, they start fighting. Sin leads to more sin. Sin leads to division among God's people. And this is how chapter 12 ends. Verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died. Verse 8. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. Ten. Then Ibzan died. Eleven. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Twelve. Then Elon the Zebulonite died. Verse 13. After him, Abdon the son of Hillel the Pirathonite judged Israel. Then, verse 15, then Abdon the son of Hillel the Pirathonite died. Two things. Cycle of death. What's missing from here that we've seen before? There's no more mention of the land had rest. Remember that frame from earlier on? God would deliver His people and would say, and the land had rest. 
But that's gone, and it's not going to show back up again in Judges. Destruction, distress, division, and death. That's the cycle. Sin is more serious than we think. This is where it leads us. But God is more glorious and gracious than we imagine. This is not where he leaves us. If you were to go read Hebrews chapter 11, you would find that Jephthah is listed in what's commonly called the Hall of Faith. That's surprising. The story of Jephthah is not about Jephthah. The story of Jephthah is about the grace of God. The fact that Jephthah would show up in Hebrews 11 is scandalous. But this is the gospel. Your greatest act of sin does not have to define you. God is more glorious and gracious than you can imagine. Judges 10 through 12 helps us feel the weight of our sin only to push us forward to the wonder of the Savior. With each dead judge, we're asking, is there ever going to be a judge who doesn't die? With each dead judge, we're asking, is there going to be ever going to be a judge, maybe a judge who would put to death, death all together? Wouldn't that be a better story? Wouldn't that be a better ending? Well, I have good news. God breaks the cycle of death by taking on death himself in Christ. Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, conquers death. And now there's an empty tomb on earth. And though there are no more mentions of land having rest in Judges, the Bible doesn't end with Judges. There is a land that is coming that is full of rest, brothers and sisters. There is a land of no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more division, no more death. And so let the absence of rest here pull you forward to the rest that is promised in Christ, the eternal judge who will reign forever with his people together forever and ever. Amen? God is more glorious and gracious than you can imagine, than I can imagine. Will you trust him? Let's pray.